You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Church family, good to see you here this morning. So glad you're with us in here. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, as much as we can make of it in this season. Uh, Josh, man, thanks for leading us here, this, this team, this crew. I mean, it was such a gift. The last two songs that we just sang uh, were actually written here, not only in-house in Northway, but written for our body. And so just a gift uh, from the Lord just to have Josh's leadership, the volunteers who helped contribute to that, just to set our affections upon Christ. And that's what we're here for each and every Sunday is to, to point ourselves towards the hope and the trust that is in Jesus Christ. And today uh, marks the beginning of Advent, as already has been said, in this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where we as a church have the opportunity to look back uh, in reflection at the first advent, which by the way is a word that just means coming or arrival, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus Christ, and, uh, and to do so in gratitude as we look back with thankfulness upon uh, the salvation that God has brought to us through Jesus Christ, but also to leverage this season, uh, not only to look back, but to train our hearts in looking forward as we wait upon the second coming, the second advent, the second arrival of Jesus Christ, when he will bring with him the fullness of the salvation that he has promised us, the one that began at the cross, but will be culminated um, with the crown. And so that is our hope. And that's what we're launching into here. And especially y'all on the, on the heels now of what has been one dumpster fire of a year, um, the dumpster fire called 2020, the dumpster fire that has culminated even in the election cycle that we just walked through where it's just became so obvious how easy it is in the narrative of our culture to rehearse the secular narrative that our hope and our trust must be in secular rulers and secular kings and, and uh, both state and, and national and and to uh, use this season we thought would be best, especially in Advent, to refocus, recalibrate our hearts towards where our true king is in Jesus Christ, our true kingdom that he has brought, um, the, the fullness of the kingdom of Christ. And so therefore we've entitled this Advent series, Kingdom Come, and it's straight out of Matthew chapter 6. In fact, if you have Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me initially here to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to do quite a bit of flipping today, and so you'll need a Bible there in front of you would be helpful, whether... Uh, in hard copy or through digital, but Matthew chapter six uh, is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus was doing, if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, was reframing all that the people had been taught by their local leaders. And so often in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus is reframing the true truths about the kingdom. And one of the things that Jesus reframes is just what we should be praying for as his followers, as his people. And in Matthew chapter six, starting in verse nine, Jesus starts talking about, here's what you need to be praying for. Here's what prayer looks like. And it's juxtaposed against the, prayer, the prayerlessness in, in many ways, or the prayer life of, of the, the leaders of the day that would go out in the public square and would pray out loud in order to draw attention to themselves. And really the prayer was nothing about God or his kingdom, but really it was focused on man and man's kingdom. And Jesus says, no, and, and instead of doing that, I want you to do this, go get alone. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray like this and notice in verse nine and following, he says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Literally holy is your name. The name of God is unlike any other name that we've ever said from our own lips. It is fully set apart and distinct. 
High above the earth, high above the heavens is the name of God. Exalted is our Father in heaven. Holy is his name. And then he says, pray that your kingdom come, God. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And throughout scripture, I want to use this as a starting. This is the theme of our series. Your kingdom come. Throughout the scripture, God's priority is always centered around his kingdom, bearing weight, bearing witness upon the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of earth. And in the New Testament, the Greek word that's used there for kingdom, the word basilia is what it is, means to rule or to reign with authority. And what you come to find out is when we talk about a kingdom, a true kingdom must always have three things present. First, there is a ruler who is empowered with sufficient authority. Second, there is a realm of subjects who fall under that authority. And third, there are the rules of governance that bind those subjects to that authority. And so those three things, we see all three of those always evidenced throughout Scripture and are always reminding us that when it comes to kingdoms of the earth, there is really only one kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. It is our God alone who rules and reigns with sufficient authority over all the earth, over all the universe. And, and, uh, and even the psalmist, David, David, remember one of the greatest kings in humanity in scripture, even confessed this in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Like even David confessed and acknowledged, yes, I'm a king. Yes, I'm kind of ruling over this kingdom of Israel here, this nation of Israel, but the true kingdom is God's. He is the one with true authority who rules over all, both seen and unseen. And so by definition right there, the universe in which we live is really a theocracy. Theos means God. Ocracy is the idea of rule. God is the one who rules, David confessed, over all of creation. The things visible and the things invisible. God is sovereign over it all. And God has issued within his rule a governance, rules of governance that are binding regardless of circumstances. And these come through covenants that God makes with his subjects over and over throughout the scriptures. These rules that are through these covenants that he makes with this creation, they're always meant to lead towards the ultimate glory of God and the ultimate flourishing of humanity. And through his governance, all men, all women are held accountable to God, whether we are willing to acknowledge and submit to his rule or not, it does not take away from the truth that God is our king. God is the one who rules and reigns. And unfortunately, what we've seen since the very beginning of creation, all the way through the dumpster fire this year, is uh, a humanity that is marked by a rebellion against that kingdom, constantly wanting to reject God as king and wanting to run from God's kingdom rule, wanting to instead establish our own kingdom rule. Uh, we see this in the very beginning with Lucifer, one of the most beautiful angels, full of splendor, the scripture says. And yet in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we see that 
Lucifer, that angel, became filled with pride and envy and jealousy, culminating in violence, wanting to replace God with his own rule. And God judged him, cast him to the earth. And that was the first rebellion that we see in all of creation was Lucifer, Satan himself, rebelling against God. And then what ensued after that was the rest of humanity. And you remember in early on in Genesis, uh, Genesis 3 is where we see the first man and woman rebel from that kingdom. And it, it happens in a garden, which, by the way, is no accident. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there is a specific purpose for gardens in the scripture. When we think of gardens in our own Western sphere here, we tend to think of some encapsulated area in our backyard where we're either growing herbs or vegetables or maybe some beautiful flowers, a variety of different types of gardens. Uh, It's interesting if you go over to Europe, um, and I even saw this in parts of California where I used to live for a little while, um, a garden is not actually just that. A garden is just a yard. And in fact, in Fresno, California, all the landscape people were always called gardeners. Didn't matter whether they're actually helping till a garden. If they're just mowing a lawn, they're a gardener because the whole lawn is a garden. And, but, and those are our common identifications with garden. But biblically speaking, especially in ancient Israel, gardens are almost always connected to kings. Kings were the ones who had gardens. And so it's no accident that the scriptures begin with God creating man and woman and putting them in his garden. It is the the understanding of his kingly rule, and he creates them stamped with his image to represent him, to testify and witness to his kingship, and be given a vice regency, an extension of his governing over his kingdom on the earth, and, and man is created for this purpose, yet in that moment is when we see Lucifer show up again, Satan himself, and entices man to do just what he did, to usurp the kingly rule of God, the promises and the decrees of God in exchange for their own. And if you remember the consequence of that is once sin enters the picture, not only is the rest of the earth cursed, but man and woman are now put outside of the garden. They are removed from God's presence in this moment. God is still on the throne, but man is removed. And so man now seeks to set forth building their own kingdoms apart from God. And we see this play through scripture. We see it play through humanity. It's present in our own lives today. Even in this, we studied the book of Romans. Paul in Romans chapter one gives the ultimate testimony that this is what is in the heart of every human being is to replace God with themselves. You see this in Romans one. Listen to these words again. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the ruling and the reigning God, for images resembling mortal man. And he goes on to say, for this reason, God gave them over. And so the kingdom that was in Genesis 1 and 2 is no longer the kingdom that is because of Genesis 3. And going back to Jesus's prayer here in Matthew 6, just the mere fact that Jesus calls his followers to pray for God's kingdom to come is the simple evidence that his kingdom is not fully acknowledged or embraced on this earth as it should be. And so we are praying for God's kingdom 
and God's rule to bear upon the kingdoms of man. And so Tony Evans says this best, by the way. He says, when the human condition is used as the starting point for our perception of God, meaning we use our brokenness to try to tell us who God is, that he must be cruel, he must be mean, whatever. Whenever we use the human condition as the starting point of our perception of God, rather than starting by a surrender to the sovereignty of God over the human condition, whenever we start that way, faulty theology and sociology always emerges. What we wind up with is a God fashioned into the image of man rather than man fashioned by the image of God. Now, when, again, others said, when we as a human race end up settling for a fallen, sinful kingdom with man at the center and not God, the result will always be catastrophic, ending up with the diminishment of God's glory and the destruction of humanity just as we have seen so rampant in our culture ever since. So what I want to do, y'all, I want to show us this morning just a a brief couple of passages here that I think serve as a a classic example in our Bible of what this exchange looks like, what it looks like in the human heart for us to constantly run after human kings and human kingdoms for our hope and our sufficiency rather than the kingdom of God. And in doing so, I want to point us forward as we launch into this Advent season of rightly seeking to place our hope in our true King, Jesus Christ, and the true fullness of his kingdom that will not disappoint. So do me a favor, flip to your, um, your left there from uh, Matthew 6 and, and go all the way up towards the front to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And here we're going to see a picture of Israel crying out to God that they would actually reject God as their king and put in place a human being that they would worship as king. And uh, to get there, though, you need a little bit of background to make sense of why this is so tragic. And it always goes back to the Exodus. If you remember in uh, the book of Exodus, towards the end of Genesis, actually, uh, Israel, God's people, God's chosen people, they are enslaved in Egypt under the reign of a wicked king, Pharaoh, for over 400 years until God finally comes along and redeems them by his own power. And you remember the miraculous power in which he does so, bleeding them through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, and then enclosing the Red Sea in on Pharaoh and all his army, destroying that king once and for all. And as soon as they cross to the other side, God makes them a promise that from this point forward, Pharaoh is no longer your king. I am your king, and I will establish my kingdom over you forever. Even even the Israelites, along with Moses, they they sing a, a song of worship to God and hear their confession. Listen to these words. I'll have it on the screen from Exodus 15, starting in verse 17, says, God, you will bring them in. And you will plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And listen to this. This is what they confess, the promise back to God that he told them. And the Lord shall reign forever and ever. 
You are no longer slaves to the oppression of the bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. You have been redeemed. You have brought into the kingdom of light and your God will reign over you now forever and ever. What has been dead has been brought to life. What has been dark has been brought to light and God is your king. Even Asaph, one of the psalmists, would confess years later in looking back at this event, he says these words in Psalm 74, 12, for God is my king. He's my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And the psalm goes on to foretell or to, to recap the story of God's deliverance in that exodus. And it's from that moment Israel knew we have a king in our God. He is the one who will fight for us. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is our hope. He is our salvation. God is king. No one else. And then what God would do in the subsequent years is he would appoint judges, not kings, but judges over his people. Judges who were intended to be under shepherds who would execute justice on God's behalf. Through them, God would carry out his justice for his people. And uh, by the way, we're going to study a handful of those judges next summer, this coming summer, when we'll take a little break from Romans and we'll do a mini series in the book of Judges, which is, I hope, to be encouraging for us all. And we're going to look at this. But nonetheless, in 1 Samuel 8, we come to the end of the line of the judges. Samuel is one of the last judges. And there's some things going on here in Israel, and the people are going to gather for an emergency meeting. And I want you to hear what they have to say to God through Samuel. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judge, judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, which by the way means the Lord is God. And the name of his second son, Abijah, which means the Lord is my father. Two great names. They were judges in Beersheba, which was a city down south in the Negev in the desert. And uh, unfortunately though, these sons who started out so well, who started out so godly, they did not walk in God's ways. They did not walk in Samuel's ways. But instead, they turned aside after gain. And he says they took bribes and they perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and they came to Samuel, who was in Ramah, which is the city up north, and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So they call this emergency meeting here and the elders gather and they launch two main complaints towards Samuel. Number one, Samuel, you're old. You're about to phase out of office, which by the way, the irony is, is Samuel about this time, most believe he's in his sixties. And if that's old, Lord help us, but he's in his sixties and you're old and you're phasing out Samuel. And what you've done is you've raised up sons who are going to kind of take your place. But here's the second complaint, your son's are abdicating their role. They're perverting God's justice, not extending it, they're perverting it. And they are, they've become corrupt. Instead of these rulers becoming a blessing to the nation, they have become part of the problem. Can that happen, by the way? Is it possible to install a leader into an office that seems to, to start off good and then over time actually turns and becomes corrupt. Not that that's ever happened in the history of our country. That's out there, right? Is that possible? No, happens unfortunately too much. 
And that's exactly what's happening here. And so the problem is this, Samuel, you're getting old, you're about to phase out of office, and what's gonna be left are your corrupt sons. We can't handle this. Now, that's a fair complaint. And you know what a fair ask would be at this point? Is, hey, Samuel, we need you to clean house. We need you to call your sons to repentance. And if they won't, then we need to appoint some next line of judges who are godly. That would be a fair ask. That would be a fair request. But what we're going to find out, well, you'll find out if you kept reading the pages to come, is that the motivation of these elders in coming to Samuel, their motivation is just as corrupt as the actions of Samuel's sons. And what they're actually coming with is an idolatrous heart. And so here's what they ask for at the end of verse five. We want you to appoint for us, not better judges. We want you to appoint for us a king, a king who will judge us, a king like all the other nations have. Notice what they don't ask for. They don't ask for repentance. They don't ask for succeeding judges. They ask for a king and not just any king, a king like all the nations have, a human king. And they don't just ask, they are demanding a king here like all the other nations. Now, why is this a problem? Well, because it happens to be that somebody already holds the office of king over God's people. That is God himself. God has been the king. He has established his rightful kingship. He promised them after the Exodus, I'm going to be your king forever. He told them in Exodus 14, 14, I'm going to fight your battles for you. Like you don't need a king like all the other nations have. And so what's happening here, and I don't want you to miss this. This is not just a people presenting an unwise option. What these people are doing is treason. It is a coup d'etat on God. And God who knows the human heart when even nobody else knows it, confirms that this is indeed what they are asking for not a replacement of Samuel, a replacement of God. And Samuel confirms this in verses six and following. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, I want you to obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. And so God says to Samuel, it ain't you and your boys that they're rejecting, it's me. And God says to him, God says to them, thy will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is on earth. And let's see how well this goes for you. Now, won't read this, but in verses 9 through 18, God simply warns the people about the demand that they are demanding. God warns them that this is going to cost them if they trade God for a human king. It's going to, first of all, it's going to be expensive because what they're seeking to do is build a military to fight like all the other people fight, that humans would fight this rather than God fighting on their behalf. And so it's expensive. They're going to take your sons and daughters they're going to they're gonna take your taxes through acquiring your land and your livestock. You're going to become slaves to this new king, and you're going to become slaves to his decrees, which are not me and my decrees. 
And so this is not going to go well for you. Are you sure this is what you want? And notice what the people say in verses 19 and, and following. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so God says in verse 21, okay, you want a fallen human leader to be your sovereign? Then a fallen human leader you shall receive. Now, without even getting into chapter nine, if you just look at your heading, most of your Bibles have a heading. Who did they get as their first human king? Saul. Saul. And if you know anything about King Saul, Saul was a godless man. Saul ruled out of fear, constant fear that his kingship would be threatened. That fear is just another word for pride. He led out of the pride of his flesh and by the end of his reign become dang near tyrant over the people. And so we see this text in 1 Samuel 8. This is a huge text. Do you see why this is significant? Why is this here? This text is meant to give us a glimpse into the estate of the human heart and show us not only the depth of our sin and rebellion to want to reject God, but also explains why so much of the world is broken as it is. That when given the choice between God and Saul, we will take Saul every time. When given the choice between God and a serpent in the garden, we will take the serpent's wisdom in the garden over God's wisdom. When given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, we will chant out loud, give us Barabbas. See, the problem in Israel's day, it's the problem in our day as well, isn't just our experience of living in a broken and fallen world, but actually looking to that broken and fallen world for our hope and for our solutions. Rather than praying, God, we want your kingdom to come. We want your reign and rule to invade our brokenness on this earth and lead us in the way that you lead in heaven by justice and righteousness. We instead look to mere mortals around us to establish their broken reign over what's already broken, which is just futility. When we look to the world for our hope, we will get what the world has to offer. When we look to God for our hope, we will get what God offers, which is goodness and kindness and justice and power. Now, thankfully, as tragic as 1 Samuel 8 is on a commentary on humanity, God is still merciful to his people. And I don't want you to miss this. Flip over to your right, one book over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. What God is going to do even though he allows Saul to come and the people to reap what they've sowed, he's then going to make a promise about another king who will come that they can put their hope in. And it starts with King David. Remember, eventually Saul will be succeeded by an unlikely king by the world's definition, world standards, King David. King David, if you remember, was the youngest of eight sons. He was a shepherd boy. He was the last to be considered as king. And yet, unlike Saul, David was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't godless like Saul was. And as God has always done, he would use the worldly weaknesses of David in order to demonstrate the eternal strengths of God. And as David served as king of Israel, God made David a promise 
about his throne. A promise that was hinted, back, hinted at back in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24 about a future king that would come and establish his throne forever. And in 2 Samuel 7, this is called the Davidic covenant. David was such a godly king that God is forever going to identify his own son with David. And he's going to do so forever. I want you to look here, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Look at this promise that is made that is ultimately going to make all the world of difference in our hope this Christmas and beyond. In verse 12, God tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now he's talking about Solomon right there. One of David's many sons was a guy by the name of Solomon who would succeed his father. He would take the throne and he will come after David and establish his kingdom through him. And if you notice in verse 13, he tells, God tells David what he's going to do through Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, ah, this, this Davidic kingdom is never going to pass away from this time forth. God is going to establish his throne once again forever. But I want you to notice the three key words that are used here. They are all the difference for us this Christmas. Underline, if you will, in verse 13, the word house, throne, and kingdom. These are huge. I'm going to show you why in a second. House, throne, kingdom. These three will always remain out of David's line. They'll never be taken away. Even though in verse 14, Solomon's going to go corrupt and is going to have to get whooped up on by the Lord for a little bit. Look at this in verse 14, 15. I will be to Solomon a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So Solomon's going to get disciplined because he's going he's to have some sin in his kingship. However, even though I'll discipline him, my steadfast love will never depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So discipline is going to have to come, but God's love will never leave. That's what God means when he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Y'all, Y'all know what a good parent's like? I mean, how many of y'all were disciplined by your parents? Like, you know the, the, the sting of either the literal or the proverbial rod to the rear. Anybody ever had that? Like, you were disciplined when you got out of line. Let me ask you, did your parents disown you after they disciplined you? No, a good parent would never do that. A good parent will discipline you, but will never disown you. And in the same way God is saying of the Davidic line, there are going to be rough days coming for you ahead, but, and you will be punished for your sin, but I will never lose you. By the way, did y'all notice any conditions in those verses? They are none. This is called a one-way covenant. No matter what disobedience comes from you, my love will never forsake you. You know what else won't ever be lost in verse 16? Those three things again. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. God says, I've got a house, a throne, and a kingdom that are unlike any other king or kingdom of the earth. They will never be taken away. 
And in this house, throne, and kingdom, you can put your trust. Now, what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas? I'm glad you asked. I want you to flip to one last place as we'll wrap up here. Flip all the way to your right to Luke chapter 1. Keep those three things in mind. Luke chapter 1. Y'all, many of y'all are probably familiar with Luke 2 because Linus quotes it in the Charlie Brown Christmas that we'll be watching over and over this next month. But what about Luke 1? Luke 1 is a beautiful passage where the angel Gabriel shows up to offer a promise to a young virgin teenager about, about a provided Messiah who is about to show up in her womb. I want you to follow along with me in verse 26. Just listen to this promise. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And I want you to notice what the Lord will give this child. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. What three things do you see present right there? House, throne, kingdom. Tell me something. Do angels read their Bibles? Dang straight they do. Angels, Gabriel, very familiar with 2 Samuel 7. And right here, this is called the covenant of God with David. It's why one of the titles given to Jesus, our Messiah, is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of that promise that was made a thousand years earlier. And Israel, the whole time, what we learn about this church is that Israel never needed the earth's kings to save them. They just needed God's king. And if the Bible is to be believed, then that is true of us as well. Jesus is the promised king. And let me tell you, as we close out what has been a dumpster fire of a year, culminating again in a dumpster fire of an election, as we draw near to the hope of Christmas at the end of this year, oh, might we be reminded, church, that the kingdom that we need most to come is not the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't mean there's not civic duties and responsibilities. It doesn't mean that God's not the one who appointed our earthly kings, but they all exist to serve under the rule and reign of our true king. And if we look to anything lesser to be our hope and our sufficiency, then it will ultimately lead to the diminishment of God's glory and the destruction of humanity. 
Our faith is meant to rest and be rooted upon the hope that is in the true king, King Jesus, and his kingdom. And therefore, in the midst of our brokenness, and I don't know what kind of brokenness you've been walking through this past year. I know what kind I've tasted and seen and what we've all experienced in a pandemic and all the futility of this world, wherever you're at right now, you need to be reminded that there is a hope for you, a God who has provided a king who is reigning and ruling right now. And a God who's promised that the fullness of that kingdom will come. And what what fell in Genesis 3 got redeemed at the cross when Jesus Christ came and exchanged his life for ours, who shed his blood for our salvation, who's cleansed us of our sins. And we have received this kingdom and this salvation by faith. Jesus said in John 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. The first thing that we need to do is we need to put our trust in King Jesus and his salvation that he's brought for us on the cross before anything else can happen. And then we receive the renewing power of Jesus that is able to renew our broken lives day by day through what he's accomplished from the cross, all the while waiting for the full consummation of the reality of the fullness of the kingdom that is still yet to come at Christ's second advent. That is our hope. And that is what we're going to be navigating through here in this series in the weeks to come as we look at tracing the promises of God's king and kingdom all the way to the fulfillment and ultimately the consummation of that kingdom so that our hope might rest upon him. Amen. So what can we do in the meantime? We can set our affections upon him. I want to read you this quote here before we transition into it. In fact, I want to invite the band. Y'all Y'all start making your way up here. Before we transition to a time of communion, I want to read this quote to you. This is from Jeremy Treat. He wrote a book called Seek First, which is about the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful book. I commend it to you. But he says these words, and I think this is a good posture for us heading into this Advent season. He says, if we're honest with ourselves, the internal silent prayer of our fallen hearts typically is this, it's my kingdom come. We want people to follow our agenda. We want the world to praise the glory of our names. And so therefore, your kingdom come. Well, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Because in doing so, we are stepping off the throne of our own lives and submitting to God's agenda of bringing restoration and renewal in his creation. To pray your kingdom come is to ask God's gracious reign to invade the sin-corrupted spaces of our lives and our world. So church, I can't think of a better thing for us to do right now in the light of the truth of Jesus Christ and his kingship and his kingdom for us to pray those kinds of prayers right now. I want to give us just a moment of space, just a time of confession before we take communion. If there are any areas of your heart, your life, that has detoured away from setting your affections upon Christ and his kingly rule, and you have looked to lesser kings in your own life, lesser thrones to rule you and govern you and to be your hope, then confess those. Confess what those are. Use this as an opportunity to repent. And may we then be a people who can get on our face and we can plead as Christ has called us to plead, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray that prayer right now amongst ourselves, and then I will lead us into a time of communion together, all right? Let's pray, church.